2: This episode of Londonist Out Loud is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. And actually, we decided to put Squarespace through its paces. We're very proud of the London blog we run, but we thought, what the hell, let's try putting another one together in super quick time. So we got on the case using squarespace it's very easy indeed there were some beautiful templates to work with the customer support was second to none and within just one hour we'd made a fantastic looking blog all about peckham take a look at our post on the subject see what you think squarespace could not be simpler to use and because you listen to this show there's a freebie here for you you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code londonist to get 10% off your first purchase You are listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And I heard a rumour there's an election or something on this week. I don't know. We are in an election-free zone this week. But that doesn't mean we're going to be short on politics. We're going to be talking this week about energy in London. We're going on an energy tour with the Occupy movement. A far livelier subject than I at first imagined. Oh, speaking of live subjects, I've been contacted about parakeets. Specifically, and rather oddly, I was contacted late at night by a school That appears to have a keen interest in ornithology. I'm not sure who in the school was doing this. We're talking about some Bonaventures who are keen for me to know that I'm completely wrong in asserting that parakeets can only be found in the west of London. They can be found all over, especially out east, which I thought was a little odd as I've never seen a parakeet out east. So I googled it and, uh, well, there's a lot to say about the parakeet population of London. I think it might be a show in itself. They're all over the place and Jimi Hendrix might be at the root of it all. Some time spent with your favourite search engine on that subject will not be time wasted. Maybe we'll come. Come back to that. For today, though, we're off to the south side of the Wobbly Bridge to look at the power of London.
3: Hey, baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights and the sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a through no your front.
2: Today's show starts in fairly questionable surroundings. We seem to be tucked away from the main thoroughfare here on the South Bank, opposite St Paul's. There is a throng of tourists pretty much everywhere you care to look. My guests today, wearing top hats, have taken me down a little side alley, and we're on the edge of a building site, so don't say I don't treat you. Max Wakefield, Alice Bell, hello. 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 What are you about to do to me?
3: We are about to take you on a tour Of energy through central London. And we're doing that because energy is a very strange thing, but it's something that underpins all of our modern lifestyles, and we want to tell people about it and get them involved in changing the way it works. This
2: sounds good to me, tell me
3: more.
4: They've been running for a few years. They kind of spun out of London Occupy. I think the first one was the city of London, is that right? Yeah, and the people in Occupy. Situated a space, and they learnt a lot about the city. And I think people's attention being drawn to that camp also meant that they shared a lot of that knowledge with other people. And so, some people who've been involved in Occupy wanted to continue that, and they started a little tour around the city. Free tours once a to month run by volunteers. It's a walking tour, a London tourist walking tour, just exploring some of the history of, of the city. And that spun off. We had a Mayfair one. Max does one a Canary Wharf, and then this year we decided we do one about energy. So it's a tour a bit about how we use energy. London's role in the history of energy, London's role in the history of climate change. Yeah, and we've been doing it for a couple of months.
2: Okay, let's get underway. Max, what's the first step? Uh, well, we're, we're, kind of, <laughs> we're ridiculously boxed in here. Yeah, this yeah. is a bad place for a tour to start.
3: Prospects are not bright right now. Well, uh, I should
2: explain, we're surrounded essentially by port and six-foot-high fencing.
3: Yeah, it's not our fault. We didn't do it on purpose, but... We are standing outside the Tate Modern, which is where we start our energy tour. As you can guess, a few different reasons. Primarily, of course, it used to be a power station. It used to be an oil-fired power station enclosed in the early 80s. And it was built? Built in 1952 by the same guy who designed the uh, red telephone box and Liverpool Cathedral, a guy called Giles Gilbert Scott. And there used to be boats that would chug up the Thames laden with oil and the oil would be burnt here in the centre of the city to provide electricity for Londoners.
2: Now, this is one of the big things that I've been discovering over the last couple of months. It's probably well-known to everybody else, but the power stations, Battersea Power Station, this one, the one a little further up the river in Greenwich, they're a lot more recently built than I imagined.
4: Yeah, although uh, most recently they have closed. This one closed in 1982, 1981. Uh, Yes, actually, although this year it started generating electricity again. It is a power station yet again. Is that right? It's a bit of a rubbish power station. Well, I mean... It's, it's not smaller. a very big... It's a much smaller power station. Basically, they install some solar panels on their roof, so some of their electricity comes from the sun, and they, are a mini pa- they have a little mini power station on their roof, which is quite nice that the power station is generating electricity again. They probably could have more solar up there than they do, uh, but they do have some panels, which is nice to see energy generation happening in the cities again, because what happened in the middle of the 20th century is, yeah, it like, started to happen very much in the cities, with the oil these big power stations. Uh, but then it, when they stopped, we started bringing that out again and we got much more distance from our energy I think it was the podcast that you did at Battersea where they said that people didn't want it to be built you know, near them so it got built on the other side of the river Now this is a, we sort of accentuated that in the last couple of decades we're just pushing any of the dirtiness of energy as far away as possible and trying to ignore the dirtiness of what we consume
2: yeah, we, we think we're distancing the dirt, but well, we've, we've talked in the past on the show about the older smogs in the Victorian period of the 20th century. And although we can't see it, we're actually surrounded by a lot of filth in the air at the moment. So we're, we're not wholly successful, I think, in getting away from that stuff.
3: No, although it's primarily due to uh, cars now that we have all this mm. horrible stuff floating around, it was clearly probably not a good thing for public health to have a belching oil-fired power station in the middle of the city which may have been one of the reasons it was closed i don't know but we're of course not advocating a return to those dark old days but part of the reason we do this tour is to get people thinking about energy again in a way that i think we've all become accustomed to not doing because it's we take it for granted you just turn the switch or you know plug in your phone and you see the little charging sign but that's about as close as we get to understanding the processes that bring it to us and those processes need to change and are changing and I think if we remain ignorant of that then it's probably not going to serve us that well
4: and the other thing that we we mentioned on the tour and i think londoners should appreciate about their energy histories it's had different energy histories at different points we've done different things and we've realized that they didn't work and clean them up like the clean air act of 1956 or whatever it was um where they were oh no all this coal is bad let's stop that um we've i mean we're even starting to break the link with coal being generated to go down our, you know to power our electricity we're, like UK coal overall is dropping and dropping and dropping. Our use of coal is dropping and dropping and dropping. I think the end of the coal age is pretty near. It was something that we created it didn't always happen. It maybe took a while Like apparently the first time a king tried to ban coal in London was what? 13th century? Something like, that. something like that. I mean, that wasn't very successful. It took a few goes to get it going.
2: And they had the idea at that point, do you think, that it wasn't good for people?
4: Oh, yeah, like, it, they didn't. It was for, because it's for bad health. And what happened for a long time is that coal would be used by the poorer people because you would choke. Uh, and then wood would be for the rich people. they run out of wood. More and more people had to have coal. And then the rich people could go out of the city when it got too polluted. And the same thing with the big stink, you know? This is not an energy-related thing, but it is something to do with environmental pollution. The river got filled with poo, and eventually we cleaned it up. It took a while, but we did do it. Uh, now the Thames River isn't as clean as it could be, but is one of the cleanest rivers in a city in the world.
2: We are passing the Founders Arms. We've swung a left as we hit the river, and we're heading towards the big wheel and the place where the decisions are made. Mm-hmm. Founders Arms is very busy spilling out onto the waterside at this time of the night. It's about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening. One of the best days we've had so far this year as well, which puts one in mind of solar power and the possibilities there straight away, of course.
4: That was a nice link. I don't know if you meant You're that right. deliberately, but
2: we L- are L- let's, let's make it. As, <laughs> let's make it as though I did. <laughs> and what about the solar panels on Blackfriar Station?
4: There's 4,400 of them. Blackfriars Station is the world's biggest solar bridge. I don't know how much competition it has.
2: Yeah, are there any, others any side of... other sort of bridges? I haven't come across uh, them.
4: Yeah, but it's, it's a beautiful... That's a power station, you know, have just walked from one power station to another.
2: Actually, this leads me into the other question that I should have asked probably earlier on. In what way are you qualified to be talking about energy?
3: I've worked on energy in various different ways for about four or five years. I set up a organisation when I lived in Bristol that teaches people about energy... Uh, through grassroots education workshops. We teach people actually how to build solar panels from scratch and how to do some off-grid energy stuff. And we use that as a sort of a gateway to people taking a wider interest in in all sorts of themes that are attached to energy. Um, And actually myself and Alice now... Both work for a relatively small climate change and energy campaign charity called 1010, uh, which in fact launched in the Tate Modern, did it not? About five or six years ago in 2010. So I hadn't even considered that, but there you go. Another link back to the Tate Modern. So yeah, reasonably well steeped in. climate and energy politics and developments, I think.
2: And that makes me wonder, the connection between Occupy and these other organisations that you're a part of, how mm. does that all fit together?
4: Oh, I should stress that we do this as a voluntary thing and we're here in a personal capacity. If we say anything anyone gets upset about, complain to Occupy Tours, not 1010. I don't think there is necessarily that much of a link, not with our one um, some of the uh, other NGOs may be, but I think actually one of the things that was really powerful about Occupy that it didn't necessarily come out of the traditional sort of activist groups that didn't necessarily come out of Greenpeace HQ, it was people who were angry who were newly coming to that and it brought in new people who had never really, you know people drop by, they weren't necessarily there to camp but they were going to drop by and have a sit and have a chat and learn a bit more about economics in a way that they'd never really bothered to do before, which is something we try and do with the tours, it's just, a lot of people who go on the tours, they're not necessarily, um, right, occupy.
2: We're going to have a forced musical interlude, it would say.
3: I think he's got his Walkman up too loud. (laughs) Just to follow what Alice was saying, there, there really isn't much of a connection apart from the fact that as well as doing these in a personal capacity we happen to work for, for organisations but there you go that's our credentials hopefully you'll I'm sati- take your take I'm
2: satisfied. passing through rural time gates now we could continue the thames path in the direction of the hayward gabriel's wharf the royal festival hall is that where we're going
4: we're heading towards eventually shell hq but i think we might see if we could drop down towards the water and maybe go for a quiet side street
3: yeah let's try and do it. it depends whether or not the tide is up or down so we normally do our tours on a saturday so we do one a month uh, they start at two o'clock on a Saturday, but we we pick the Saturday to coincide with the low tide in the mid-afternoon of the day we do it on, because our stock, which hopefully we'll be able to do just down here, is on the water side on the beach of the River Thames. Uh, and we do that stock to talk about some of the stories that Alice has already alluded to about pollution of the water and how that was cleaned up and... Looking at the way that we come together, we can actually solve environmental problems. But we also do an exercise showing what kind of sea level rises we might expect based on different trajectories of climate change over the next 100 years or even over the next two centuries. And if you stand right down on the beach, you've got about five metres or so up to the top of the modern embankment built here. And actually, we're looking at probably in the next 200 years... You know, up to six to eight metres of sea level rise due to climate change. Some of that sea level rise is locked in, whatever we do from now on. So it's quite a sobering stop in many ways because we draw chalk lines on the wall to show different sea level rises uh, over different time periods. And when you get to the, the longest time period and you start trying to draw six metres well you can't because you've actually gone over the embankment itself, even at low tide.
2: When you say that some of the change is locked in, I presume you're saying that the level of pollution now means that that's an inevitability.
3: Yeah, so the way that climate change works is that the more carbon, roughly speaking, the more carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere, the hotter the world gets. And because that is a cumulative thing, you're basically pumping more of the stuff into the atmosphere over time. Although we talk a lot about rates of carbon emissions and getting the rate of carbon emissions down, actually just getting beyond a certain point of, we call it parts per million, means that there are certain changes that you are then locked into. But, of course, the Earth's processes work over a long time scale. They're not always human timescales. And so the fact that we, we are now up to nearly 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere means that we are locked into certain sea level rises over the next 200 years. And it's very, very difficult for us to do anything about that at all, apart from try and get people to higher ground and out of harm's way
2: one of the things that always seems to attend this conversation is various sets of thoughts through which we might cycle along the lines of oh that'll all happen tomorrow next year next century oh there'll be some technological advance that will sort this out oh there is no technological advance it's an inevitability well there's nothing we can do about that then you feel somewhat helpless in the face of this sort of problem don't you
4: I think that that's a very understandable feeling. I'd say with the technological saviour, there is some talk about geoengineering stuff, which would be kind of amazing projects that could kind of take carbon out of the atmosphere or something. But although they promise a lot, they're also very risky. And I think even people who really advocate geoengineering stuff really don't want us to do it because we would be experimenting on our earth basically we don't know what the risks would be
2: what sort of stuff are we talking about
4: well there's different things some of them are quite simple they're like plant a lot of trees which is less risky and (laughs) probably be a good thing for lots of other reasons Mm. but there's some things to do with changing the chemistry of the oceans or solar radiation management which would involve kind of i mean the simple way of putting it is giant space mirrors but it's a little bit more complicated than that i mean that sounds cool but it could be that no that
2: scares the life (laughs) (laughs) out
4: well maybe maybe it does scare the life out of you that's understandable i think even the people who research it and think it's pretty amazing still are quite scared by it and although i mean to track back that i mean that's just one of those cycles that you suggested that people might worry about and I think the feeling that there's nothing we can do, we should be careful about that because although Max said we're locked into a certain amount of sea level rise, we're not locked into like really catastrophic yet. There's still a lot of the world to save. I think we should admit that we have sort of messed up to a certain point, kind of grieve for that bit of the world that we're probably we're already losing, and build up more resilience to be able to be safe for the things that we know are likely to happen. But At the same time, we should kind of be hopeful of our ability to go, oh, no, we do know that there is stuff that we can do to stop it from getting really bad. As somebody who spends my life doing climate change stuff, I do occasionally read a scientific paper and find myself, like, I used to work in a university and I would regularly find myself just hiding under my desk in the kind of fear of it. But the thing that would give me hope is the sense that there is still so much to win on this fight. And that's what kind of gets me up in the morning and makes me think that it is doable and possible.
2: Things very important. This actually seems to me to be one of the things that I was most excited about with Occupy. Because take your level of agency that you have on any given day walking down the street. You can go this way or that. You can decide what you want to do with your life. Compare that with being in an airport about to board a plane and the degree to which every aspect of your travel is managed down to the temperature of the room you're in, where you're allowed to stand, what you may or may not carry about your person. And it feels to me like... Even within my own tiny lifetime, things have moved to a place where I feel at the mercy of forces. I mean, look at T-tip, for example. Maybe we should dig into that a little bit. I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm sure it might have a bearing on what we're talking about. Yeah. But it does seem as though we are governed from a very long distance away. What excited me about Occupy was... You know, I guess, in a, in a way, the prospect of agency. <laughs>
3: well, I think, I think that's what excited most people about Occupy, even if uh, some of the people who were getting excited were getting excited for the wrong reasons and, and shut it down. But you know, TTIP's quite an instructive example, actually, because TTIP was basically, a, 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 you know, well, is still an attempt by, effectively, bureaucrats to push for a transatlantic trade deal between... The European Economic Bloc and and North America, it's still technically secret. Like, no one, even a citizen of the US or the European Union, is allowed to see the draft text. That really has backfired because there's been so much anger about it and there's been a lot of concerted organising between professional organisations but also just voluntary civic organisations and the wheels are starting to come off it arguably. I mean it's looking rockier and rockier as it goes along and certainly some of the most pernicious aspects of it in particular the mechanism that would allow corporations to sue governments Mm. for basically making laws that didn't suit their business plans looks like it's going to have to come out whatever the weather.
2: This if I've understood it correctly is American companies and it's a one-way deal as well by the sounds of it if the governments in the European Union do anything to improve the lot of their people, uh, maybe something to do with improving the environment, yeah. and it costs the corporations anything at all in, in lost earnings, not even losing money, but not getting money, yeah, yeah. then they have the right to sue the government in question.
3: That's basically the that was the idea of the investor state dispute mechanism. And also, that suit would not happen in a court of law. At a European level or a national level, it would happen in a basically a kind of super court run by corporate lawyers. So I mean it was just extreme in its in its sort of ideological madness. But as I said, I think that's going to come out now, and that's 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 due to people organising and getting angry. And I think the same can be said of the kind of movement that is trying to build a, a better future in terms of our energy and climate policy.
4: Well, we've seen really rapid growth of the divestment movement in the last few years. Something that started as something on American campuses only like five or six years ago is now they closed down a coal mine this weekend 350 the American based NGO which has done a lot of the movement to get uh, mainly universities that have large amounts of money take their investments out of fossil fuels. Oh, uh, so e- like
2: ethical investing?
4: Yeah, kind of. I mean, the Guardian's Keep It In The Ground campaign was worked with them. It's that sort of model. And that's, that's built a whole network of groups, lot, often in universities, but also targeting local authorities and pension pots of these people who are now, they've kind of got together around targeting one endowment, whether it's their university or pension pot or something. And now they've learnt a lot more about climate change and they're putting pressure points in loads of other things. I think we're seeing, a re- we're seeing a real rapid shift away from coal. We're seeing things move. We are seeing things shift and some of that is the economics of solar panels and things that aren't necessarily in the hands of us as citizens but some of it is also the pressure that people have put, public pressure. Um, I think, as as Matt said, you can see how people taking a stand and showing that they care about these things is slightly starting to build the momentum for change
2: on this. Yeah, right. It was interesting to see BP in the news uh, in relation to their sponsorship of various... Arts oh, organisations. Yeah, I was
4: going to say well, one of the reasons we start in the in the Turbine Hall is that it's uh, been a site of so many pieces of act- Lon- one of the things that London is a world leader on is uh, arts-based activism against sp- all the sponsorship of the arts. So Liberate Tate being the kind of most high-profile of those, and they've done amazing things in the Turbine Hall, including. Uh, bringing a, and they do they do pieces of art as their protest. They are performance artists who just have a bit of a point. But the be, one of the best things they did is they brought a wind turbine blade, which was, was it six point five tons or so? It's huge, sixteen meters. 20 meters. 20, yeah, and they carried it across the Wobbly Bridge, the Millennium Bridge, and they brought it in and they left it in the turbine hall. It was a wind turbine for the turbine hall, bringing a bit of energy infrastructure into this old power station. Going, look, you are an old power station. You're not just an art gallery anymore. That's advertising BP remember, and make energy part of what you discuss, you know, art galleries like that should be, a, being spaces for us to, to contemplate this big, catastrophic thing that's happening to us, and they gave it as a gift, which meant, uh, like BP gives gifts, which meant that the Tate had to formally receive it and go through the processes of formally rejecting it, which gave Liberate Tate a load of information <laughs> about how the inner workings of the Tate they did, they so very sadly rejected it, I thought it was very sad because it was such a beautiful bit of art but then they, um, they recently kind of won in that BP have stop sponsoring the Tate and Liberate Tate held a party there a couple of weeks ago and they said at the party that um, Tate is not quite liberated yet. It still has a lot, it's a lot of inequalities about who the artists and display are. There's a lot more men than women. You can see a lot of the legacies of colonialism. You know, this is a gallery that bears the name of a sugar magnate and the legacies of slavery are still kind of expressed in the whiteness of it. At the same time, also a lot of other arts Institutions in London are sponsored by uh, BP and Shell, and so I don't think we've seen the last of liberate yet.
2: London artists leading the way in biting the hand that feeds them.
4: But let's let's go down to the beach. Yeah, it's quite right. To the up. Yeah,
2: I should say our tour hasn't gone very far. Really, we sort of uh, we're loitering uh, pleasantly. Where we stand now uh, is a set of steps that leads us down onto the beach, and we can see one of those old stone jetties. Now rotted. One of the best places to be in London, really.
4: One of, the peop- one of the reasons we take people down to the beach is just because so many people haven't been here. Even Londoners haven't been here. Uh, I don't think people realise they're allowed always, but you can. You can hear the noise on the floor of the stones. And you can smell the water. And it sometimes smells quite nice. At uh, least it smells different from up the top. And it's nice to see the-, the waves coming up at us.
3: We've actually discussed a little bit of why we before we come down here. Look, someone scratched my name onto the widow over there. That wasn't me. Uh, Is your surname Height? No, it's not. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we talk about sea level here, we talk about climate change here, but we also talk about the famous smogs of the 1950s, uh, which leads us into a discussion of of, of air pollution in London today, which is becoming a really live issue now, partly off the back of the VW emissions scandal um, and partly just off the back of people dying every single year and us paying the EU lots of money. Not just VW now i think oh all of them but i mean V. well most of them at least but vw are the ones that got caught so you know back in the 50s when coal was being used for i mean everything really power stations factories homes heating anything really was done through open fireplaces with chimneys uh london was just awash with this horrible thick smoke that was bad for people's health in the long term but it also in a very short-term way led to early demises for people. People would just fall into the river, they'd walk out in front of buses. In fact, I remember a previous uh, interview with someone on the London's Out Loud podcast saying that people would wake up some days and not be able to see their hands in front of their faces. This was Dr Christine Courtney. It might well have been. E- excellent book, by so, the way. London Fog? You should rush out and get there. There you go. Well, she has made it into our talk because that is something we tell people every, every month. And... Eventually there was there was an can you, event. Can you imagine that image still hasn't left me? Can you imagine what okay. it
2: would be like not to be able to see beyond yeah. a, a half a meter bubble around your head? there are right.
4: stories about people just falling into the into the road or the river, um, and. The other thing I got from her was that apparently Londoners were quite proud of it. Yeah.
3: Because it was <laughs> that, a that sense of their British. modernity.
4: Um, and maybe, maybe we're quite proud of our air pollution, I don't know. I, Annoyed at Delhi for beating us.
3: I, yeah, I'm not super proud of our air <laughs> pollution. But the reason we bring in that story is because although it did take a terrible event in, I think it was 1952, when 4,000 people died in the course of only a few days because it was so bad, that eventually did lead to the Clean Air Act in 1956.
2: The building of these power stations, belting out their fumes, they would have been built just four years before
3: that. Yeah, they would have come in around the same time. But yeah, it was oil, not coal, which would have been a bit of a difference. Also, I don't know anything about the height of the smokestack could have played a part because sometimes that does actually make a difference about what settles at, at the kind of breathable level but you could no longer burn dark smoke coal basically um, and that did lead to an increase in december sunshine of 70 percent so it's a good example of you know a, a major public health issue eventually getting to the point where Laws do have to be changed, and as a result of that, things do actually change. And yes, we are surrounded now by invisible particulates getting stuck in our lungs thanks to diesel, but we're not breathing in coal smoke. So, you know, at least we uh, have taken one step forward and one back, as opposed to two backwards. Is, Is there anything actually being done about the air quality?
4: Not much. I mean, they claim, well, today we just voted. Maybe it'll all be changed. Yeah, that's true. All the candidates seem to be a lot better on these things um, than any of us. In fact, the the woman who wrote the tour with us, Sophie, who isn't here today because she's working on stuff for the election. She's a real expert on this sort of stuff. Um but yeah maybe by the time we do our next tour we'll have some nice policies to announce i can only hope well when you
2: say all of the candidates i mean something that strikes me is that boris johnson has been in position now for what eight years or something mm-hmm. and i haven't heard about him doing anything useful on this front no
4: there was Pe- um, people are dying there was uh thousands of people are dying it's what nine thousand a year in that get ascribed to air quality in london i mean they, it's hard to tell because it is how it impacts on other things like
1: Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at bureaucom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at bureaucom slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
4: Heart issues, and we got told today there was a new bit of research it was just published today that you know still walking and cycling um, is still better for you than sitting down, uh, even though you're breathing in all that that uh, polluted air. Uh, but I think they said e- so even in, in Delhi, they said after you've done five hours of cycling a week, um, the effect of being in the air pollution in, in Delhi is too bad. You shouldn't actually cycle more than that. I mean, that's that's quite shocking. What was it in um, London,
3: sixteen. No, seven hours a day walking in London.
4: Seven, yeah, or no, 17 a day walking, which, like, okay, even no. weirdos like me wouldn't do that. So, often, seven yeah. a day
3: cycling. If you cycle over seven hours a day in London, stop, basically. Yeah. If you're anything under that, you're probably okay. Or just cycle away from London. Or <laughs> we'll do that.
4: Well, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> But I still have hope that we can do stuff. One of the things that London is a, is a great leader in is, is also research into this stuff. There's amazing people at King's. We can probably even almost see them from this side of the river. King's College do some great research. They also do some really amazing citizen science research. So some of the people who've been collecting the data on air quality in London are the Londoners themselves. Um, there's some great work that's done both in, in UCL and King's around that. Um, and it's a really nice example of public engagement with science, even if it comes from a really bad place, all these people with asthma feeling so depressed that they feel they have to take the science into their own hands. Mm. Uh, but yet that's another example of of um, people being really angry about it and things changing so I think one of the reasons why whoever the new mayor is will probably take some more action on it than our current mayor um, is that we have seen this build up a public um, anger about this to the extent that Evening Standard is running campaigns on it um, so I'm, well, I'm hopeful on that. So something
2: will happen unless uh, an American corporation tells us otherwise.
4: But another yeah. reason, too, another reason we take people down here is it's another example of like, you know, we took we take people down here and we talked to them about the air quality and how things did change at least about the Clean Air Act. But also we are right up against some flood defences. The embankment was built in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties as as part of Basil whole process of the, of all building all the sewers and everything else, and they act as flood defences. London used to regularly flood and uh, doesn't anymore, uh, or doesn't, in, yeah certainly, well it also doesn't because of the, flood, the larger work we had in the 80s with the flood barrier, but we've taken, we've seen problems um, and dangers and we've finally taken action to protect ourselves, to protect Londoners and we've done it before and we can do it again if we try
3: And the, the Thames barrier is a really good example of excellent forward thinking You have something built in the early 80s, mid 80s that was firstly built uh, with uh, knowledge that a sea level rise due to climate change was occurring and that took it into account using the science of the day up to 2030 and it was also built with an appreciation that believe it or not the southeast corner of the uk as in the landmass of the uk is ever so slightly tilting down into the sea so you've got the northwest tip of scotland coming up and the southeast corner of England tilting down into the sea and they knew that at the time and so it's been built to take into account those two processes going on Um, and so that's the kind of long-term thinking that we would we'd like to see on issues such as climate change more widely across policy making uh, because it is the most important challenge of our time really. This is just a suggestion do you think we need to get a a hardback
2: book or something and just tuck it under the southeast corner of Britain.
3: I wonder which book we'd choose. I don't know. We'd probably have to run a competition. London is that loud competition there you go. Which book which, which we... book to t- tuck under Kent. Yeah, there you go. The Canterbury Tales perhaps who knows <laughs>
2: We're, I'm sure there's a name for this uh, beautiful semicircle of plaza. allows you to sit on the benches. It's always illuminated in winter, isn't it? The early evening, these trees are lit up blue and white. We are not continuing along the Thames Path, but we are moving back into uh, rather strange gardens. Where are we going?
4: Oh well, we're partly going off the main bit of the river just cuz it's a bit quieter, but also because these strange gardens are part of the Coin Street Housing Cooperative. And um, Oh, that sounds we,
2: a bit Oxo Tower to me.
4: Well, yeah, they I think Coin Street Community Builders own uh, the Oxo. Uh, they, they own a lot of this area. They built they were responsible for kind of transforming a lot of this area, building a lot of the green open spaces um, that have made this area a sort of place that lots of people like to hang out. I mean, like It's really busy, even though we've gone off the main thoroughfare and it's a bit quieter here, there's still loads of people walking, running in the park, there's lots of people sitting having picnics. This was not like this when I was a kid. I mean I worked at the Globe 99 just before Tate Modern opened and all of this was built in then and it was quite nice but it, it wasn't somewhere that people kind of went down, it was always really quite quiet or um, certainly in the earlier 80s this sort of area was just wasn't just, just wasn't much here
2: when you say quite quiet that probably wasn't a good thing at that point
4: yeah i mean well it depends <laughs> bits of it but what we have now is a really beautiful resident this is actually a residential area and unlike some of the flats that we saw going up around the back of Tate Modern, well, it's not luxury flats <laughs> the endless luxury flats that we wonder who mm. cool lives in them the houses here they're a housing co-op so they don't have a landlord um, they all uh, pay in money that you know like rent and then they That goes into um, maintaining the building. And then they cooperatively take decisions about what goes on there, rather than having a landlord just decide we're going to kick you out or redo something. And the people who built it, they wanted to build homes for Londoners, for normal Londoners. The rent wouldn't be that expensive. It wouldn't wouldn't cost thousands of pounds a week to live there. And part of that, they didn't just want to have affordable rents but they wanted to make sure that the energy bills were affordable too. It's one of the problems that a lot of people all over the UK have and certainly people in London have is that on top of their rent they also have to pay really high energy bills Um, and that's because our housing stock is some of the worst in Europe. British housing is just incredibly leaky when it comes to energy so actually our energy price per unit is some of the cheapest in Europe. But you wouldn't necessarily think that because we have to buy so much of it. So we have some of the highest energy bills. We certainly have some of the large proportions of people living in what's called fuel poverty. So people who have to make the decision about whether they're going to uh, eat or heat their home. Um, but the, the great people who built the, that housing co-op by Coin Street you know, wanted to literally insulate their... Uh, the people who live there from that kind of problem. And so they're incredibly energy efficient, the homes there. and um, the people who live there will not have to spend much money on their energy bills at all. So they can afford to they can spend money on other things, nice things, you know, living. Um if only we Staying could all, alive, yes. yeah. But well, if only we could all have like lovely homes like that. It's a it's a real sense of people building homes to be lived in, which we probably
3: could have more of.
2: Homes to be lived in, there's an idea. Yeah.
4: And to be warming and
2: And there's Coin Street passing on the top of that now.
3: Yeah. And actually they Where When they originally built it, they fought off uh, an attempt at the time to build a skyscraper on the site. And, uh, of course, there are now skyscrapers going up all around it. And there are, you know, 200 planning applications for skyscrapers along the Thames. So this is a a very contemporary theme. But at the time, they had the support of what was a very left-wing GLC, uh, led by Ken Livingston, lots of other people involved. And uh, through that support, they were able to, to fight off that threat, and they built what is undeniably a much better use of space in its place.
2: We're passing the ITB headquarters now and I suppose I should take this opportunity since we're mentioning former leaders of London. Given that this is before the count and before we before the results of the vote are announced, would you please, each of you, stake your life on who's going to be the next Mayor of London? Alice? Oh,
4: that seems unfair. I, Looking at the polls, I'd be surprised if anyone other than Sadiq Khan won, but polls are wrong.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's... I think it's going to be Sadiq Khan. You don't seem cheerful either of you. Uh, I will probably put Sadiq Khan down as my second preference. I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a green voter. No, I think Sadiq will be will be better than what we've got because what we've got is, is Boris, um, who mainly does it for the attention. But I, I'm not blown away by it, Sadiq Khan. Um, but we'll see, you know we'll see. Can't write him off before he started. Well, he hasn't even got elected yet. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: what would you like him to do?
3: Well, I think, yeah, so we've talked about we've talked about air, air quality. That's got to be really high up the agenda. I'm a, I'm a cyclist as well, um, so it's something that is quite literally close to my heart because I'm breathing this stuff in every day. And I have to, you know, I stuck around with a mask on. I'd really like to take that mask off one day. So uh, if you could sort that out for me, that'd be excellent. I think even though I'm probably not one of the more vulnerable people in terms of housing in London, I think that is just such an absolutely critical issue and someone's really got to take that on and, and find a way to get Londoners into affordable homes um, but then I think being ambitious on, on new things new ideas that maybe the public are a little bit behind the curve on such as transforming London into you know, something that can produce its own energy You know we've got huge amounts of roof space in London that can be turned over to solar, we've got opportunities for district heating for combined heat and power, there's so much that can be done in London to turn it into an energy producing place uh, as opposed to one that sucks it in from dirty power stations around the country so some ambition on that would be excellent
4: uh, other than what Max said, um, I suppose one of the weaknesses that Khan has over the other candidates, and, and but compared to the other candidates, is that although they're all anti Heathrow expansion, uh, it would be hard to run from there and be pro Heathrow. I think um, he does seem to be quite up for airport expansion, and that's going to have a problem with air quality, and also, and uh, it will not, we will not be able to meet our. Car, our climate our uh, carbon reduction emissions targets if we have another if like, airport expansion so I'd like to see him be more ambitious when it comes to attacking climate change and air quality with his airport's policy
2: now while we've been recording this leg of the tour we should say even when we get to the shell building that the real tour goes on beyond this and it goes to Whitehall and uh, although we won't be going there we'll send our uh, our avatars there what will our avatars be seeing in Whitehall?
4: Well, first of all, they're going to stop off outside the Nigerian High Commission and we'll talk about, we talk a bit about Nigeria and the oil industry there and some of the ways in which that's interacted with people in London. And then we end up outside the Department for Energy and Climate Change and we talk a bit about how that was created and why it was created and a bit about history of British energy policy. It was started with the Climate Change Act, which was 2008. Yeah, it was part of the reasonably world-leading at the time uh, Labour policy of having the Climate Change Act, having quite what was seen then as reasonably, I think still relatively ambitious, carbon reduction targets, and making sure that we had a structure in place to hold us to that and having a department called Energy and Climate Change you know, uh, having a minister was part of that
2: And how are we doing? Well Oh dear
3: We're not doing brilliantly at the minute
2: Are we meeting our own
3: targets? Um, we, uh, the government has missed its own internal targets, so that's carbon reduction of government departments. We are on course to meet our second carbon budget, I think. I forget which one we're on, I think it's the second one. Beyond that, basically, the further ahead you look into the mid 2020s and certainly beyond 2030, we're on a trajectory that is almost certainly going to miss what we need to be achieving. Those carbon budgets are set with respect to an overall target of 80% reductions in carbon emissions by 2050. Remember what I said earlier about rates of carbon emissions. So, you know, what that's saying is that in 2050, we want to be emitting 80% less carbon every year than we are currently. Now, in theory, you could go all the way up to 2049 at 100%, and then just, you know, find some magic way of cutting that 80% just in pull, the final the, year. Pull the plug out of yeah, the Yeah, just, you know, turn everyone's lights off. And you'd still meet your, your target. But of course, you would have, if that was the whole world taking that approach, you would have cooked the earth by then because it's cumulative. So it's really important that we start early. The earlier you start, the better chance you give yourself of avoiding catastrophic climate change. So this is
2: about decelerating towards a junction.
3: We are at the minute, post-Paris in December last year, December 2015, as a historic moment where all of the nations of the world, barring very few, about two or three, came together and agreed that climate change is, one, a big problem and two, collectively something needs to be done about it and a target was set. (laughs) Do they really have a... A special conference to decide those two things. Basically, oh, yeah. they been doing it
4: for since the 90s. They have a couple every year. They have, they have conferences where they discuss
3: how they're going to have the next conference.
2: And they, they decided that it's a problem and they need to do something about
3: it. Yeah. Well, that, so six years ago in Copenhagen, that's roughly what happened. They thought they were going to get a deal and then actually they ended up deciding to make a deal in six years' time. And they did finally manage to make that deal. Now, the deal is probably 10 or 15 years too late, but it's a deal nonetheless and it is It should be a political game-changer.
4: When you say it's 10 to 15 years too late, it's too late for some bits of the world, I agree, but it's not too late, like, full stop. And that's that kind of thing that we have to be careful about, being... just feeling like we should just give up. Um, And when environmentalists say it's 15 years too late, I think we're right to do that, but we have to be aware of uh, how people who aren't expert in this take that and how they might just not bother when they hear words like that. Uh, and we should remember that it's, it's ten, maybe 10 to 15 years later than it should be. But just like sometimes you do your homework a bit late, but you still scrape a D. Yeah. Um, this is a
2: tightrope you're walking. That's a good example as well, because you, you've got to emphasise the seriousness of it, but without overwhelming the possible participant in bringing it around.
4: Yeah, and I feel sometimes that we can end up sounding a bit disingenuous when we're like, oh, no, it'll be all right, really. Uh, and I don't want to do that. It's not going to be easy, We're already locked into. Oh well, for probably for people who live in London who are reasonably wealthy, it won't be too bad. There are parts of the world that are already suffering really badly from climate change. There are parts of Britain that have certainly had the effect of the floods in the last few years, which climate change has contributed to. And they know they've seen. You know, the the coalface maybe is the wrong phrase to use for this, but they've been at the forefront of this. They've seen what it's like, and they know it's not pleasant. Um, We're going to have we're going to have more of that, Um, and that's not going to be good. Uh, But we'll find better ways to protect ourselves from that. And I think that, as I said earlier, there's still scope for us to save a world that is livable in. It won't necessarily be the one we currently live in. But it could still be a pretty awesome one. It'll just be a bit different.
2: We have just passed under the arches of the, I think that's the Hungerford Rail Bridge. Mm -hmm. Sounds like the Hungerford Rail Bridge. And we can see the eye looking as majestic as ever against the blue sky. And to the left of it, on the left-hand side of the road we're on, I think that's the
3: Shell building. It is It is the Shell centre. Uh, so, as you can see, we're at another building site. We're starting and ending this tour in building sites. And it's being knocked down and rebuilt into another seven skyscrapers, I think, which people have some people are very angry about, but anyway.
2: Let me guess what's going to be in those skyscrapers.
3: Uh, you know, free public housing. Excellent. Anyone can just walk in. Oh, good. Anyone can just walk in for the night. No, no one asks Two any questions.
4: hospitals, yeah. yeah. Science labs. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> Everything you need, really, to run a society. Um, what we're left with, uh, for the time being, is perhaps conveniently now, kind of on its own, the quite monolithic Shell Centre. And actually, this was built at the same time as the Royal Festival Hall. Shell helped to fund the Royal Festival Hall because the British government was not very rich at the time, having just fought the worst war in global history. Ever since then, this is where their UK headquarters have been. Their global headquarters are still in Holland, I believe, because the full name of Shell is Royal Dutch Shell. It's quite a long and interesting history as to how Shell ended up being the company it is today. And I think I'm going to hand that over to Alice because she tells this story best.
4: Well, yeah, so big multinational Shell, famous for trying to drill in the Arctic, discovered oil in malaysia in 1912 nigeria in 1958 a anglo-dutch but also got you know it's shell this is actually shell mex house because there's a mexican company involved in it too the multinational company started off in the east end of london in not far a few miles to the east in uh, Whitechapel. and is that
2: that even possible Shell started in Whitechapel.
4: and and this is my favorite bit it's called shell because they used to sell shells
2: Well, what are you even talking about?
4: So, uh, one Marcus Samuel, guy lived in the east end of London. He was Jewish. Some people say that his background was Iraq. Some other people say it's Holland. Could be both. Both would fit a particular narrative of the oil industry. So I think we should probably be a bit, maybe take those stories to a pinch of salt. What we do know is that he was registered in the 1851 census as a shell merchant and he probably had made his money just buying stuff from the sailors that came in on the docks around the east end and selling them on he probably sold shells were quite fashionable burgeoning bourgeoisie in London you'd have little you know those little boxes you can still buy them at seaside towns that girls would buy it was quite popular at the time and he he would buy import shells to make that he also imported all sorts of other things, pepper, peacock feathers. Um, he had two sons, Marcus Samuel, who he imaginatively na- named Marcus and Samuel. So,
2: <laughs> to their delight. Yes, yeah,
4: so you have Marcus Samuel Jr., Marcus Samuel, and Samuel Samuel. And that together they built up this industry of transport and trading, importing and exporting, more and more things out of London. Some people say that he did so much global trade because London at the time was so anti-Semitic. There were very few people who traded him in London, so he kind of went elsewhere. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Um, certainly he did seem to like to get around uh, he imported the first mechanical loom to japan um, and then
2: there, there seems to be a bit of a career jump right there
4: yeah i mean he's, he's well he's, he's just trading you know you could maybe think of him as um uh you know he's, he's an eastern trader
2: well okay so i'm imagining he's, he's selling these shells yeah and then uh, somebody wants to get one of these little shell boxes and they say i've got no money but i've got this mechanical loom
4: yeah and some pepper and some people's <laughs> <laughs> um, but they built up quite a lot of trade routes and networks and Marcus Samuel Jr. really took really you know joined the firm really built more and more and so Story says in the 1890s he's in the Caspian Sea in Russia and he's apparently buying some shells I, don't, I mean I don't think he was on the beach picking them up I think he was he probably wasn't even importing shells. I think this is just a nice story. But he was, he was in the Caspian Sea anyway. And he could see the burgeoning oil industry there. You could see uh, Ludwig Nobel, who was Alfred Nobel of the prizes fame's brother, who built the modern oil industry in Poland and Russia, had commissioned, uh, he made ships that could carry oil, the first oil tankers. And uh, Marcus Samuel saw those, Marcus Samuel Jr., saw those and he thought. Uh, I want to do this, I want to get in on this. You know, I transport trade and I want to do more than a mechanical loom. And he built the first purpose-built oil tankers. So Ludwig Noel had kind of taken old ships and repurposed them to be oil tankers. Marcus Samuel built ships that could carry oil. And what's really important about those was they were the first oil tankers to meet the safety regulations of the Suez Canal Company, which meant they could take oil from the Caspian Sea all the way through the Suez Canal, and that opened up whole new routes. And from that they built this massive global industry. And so the story of Marcus Samuel and Marcus Samuel Jr from the East End of London all the way around the world is, is a big part of the story of globalisation. They are, at the centre, of driving a lot of our globalised economy now and they're also very symbolic of a lot of other things around them. And yet he ended up, um, he ended up doing quite well for himself, Marcus Samuel Jr. He ended up being an actual oil baron given a baronet for services in world war one and his son had a lovely stately home in kent which you can now visit it's run by the national trust and one of the nice things about that is the national trust are really good on low carbon technology and they've just replaced the oil boilers with biomass ones so if you want to go and visit a bit of renewable energy at an oil baron's house uh, i can recommend going down to kent i think it's upton house or something like that in kent well
2: that says a great deal about the speed with which his innovations and his product were taken on that he was able to achieve that level of success in his own lifetime
4: exactly I think it's quite an inspirational story in many ways I mean it's awful in many ways but also I mean, he built this world that is locked into oil and um, the way that we are now him and people like Rockefeller and the other oil barons um, but it's a sort of well if they could do that we can do our own one you know we could have rapid change like that ourselves so if they built that world we could build another one uh, so I, I take it as quite a hopeful story
2: well, you know what, I would like somebody to really get the, get hold of the electric car thing and make that happen. Because as, as a layperson, someone who doesn't know anything about anything in terms of energy, or, or anything else in fact, it seems to me like electric powered cars is the way forward. As long as they make a bit of noise, I'm happy.
3: Yeah, electric cars is an interesting one because they're just starting to come into the mainstream consciousness a little more, predominantly because of Tesla uh, and Elon Musk being a, a really exceptional self-publicist and quite a, an eccentric, almost, I think, attempting to be a sort of Monday day Rockefeller or Henry Ford, you know, really trying to push the boundaries of what industry can achieve in terms of social transformation. So he's a very interesting person. In terms of technology, it's still, I think, quite a long way off mass adoption. For example, at the minute, a Tesla, you know, a standard Model T or whatever it is, Model, can't remember what it's called, Tesla, Will cost you about eighty thousand dollars. You have to recharge it every hundred and sixty-five miles, and that's driving it at absolute optimum efficiency.
2: Yeah, but if you describe early mobile phones, then you'd have the same sort of problems.
3: Oh, absolutely. This. I think they they will. Uh, you know, at some point, we. It's not even a question of choice, really. We have to electrify transport. I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think that's in question. I don't think we the technology is at the point yet where you're going to see that adoption happening of its own accord. The Dutch government, interestingly, have just uh, announced that they, I think, are attempting at least to legislate to ban diesel and petrol cars by 2025, right? So they're giving themselves 10 years to get all Dutch citizens. I think it's at that point you won't be able to sell petrol or diesel cars after 2025 in Holland so I think you know the time scale is probably 20 years to see them starting to make serious gains but I think thinking that petrol cars are going to disappear overnight would be optimistic.
4: So one of the things we've had seen a lot of news recently haven't had quite as much attention as the diesel rigging issues but the Greenpeace investigations unit have done quite a lot of work uncovering how much work um, oil companies and some car companies have done to lobby local areas to stop them from helping have policies that would encourage the deployment of electric vehicles and i think if we see work like that uncovering that kind of lobbying and therefore possibly that lobbying being stopped we might see more rapid growth of the policies that would help develop it in london the last month we've got our first double decker bus that's electric which is pretty cool apparently there's one up in york that was not the world's first they had, york got it first but uh, we've got one we may have more soon. Um, are, it's, it's going to happen it's going to happen fast but maybe not as fast as it needs to
2: i like the note of optimism to end on there we've oh, got no, we've... i can give you all right oh a so oh, no, oh, london
4: fact that is so we very go. pessimistic when do you think the first london uh, electric cab in london was
2: in the 60s 1890s. Good Lord. Oh, we, no, of course it would have been, yeah.
4: Uh, it used to be on display at the Science Museum. It was really beautiful, but um, it shows that this technology's been around for a long time.
2: Yeah, no, we've been on so some of the, the old Harrods vehicles that go back to sort of 1911 or somewhere around there.
4: Electric te- technology can can go very fast, and sometimes it can just be very slow. Uh, so maybe yeah,
2: th- those fast vehicles fast. definitely don't. Uh, well, and maybe maybe that may be part of the problem, problem yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we have to reluctantly draw to a close a quick... Though for the tours which happen, uh, what month? Monthly, I think.
3: Yeah, so, so there are <clears throat> four tours that you can choose from. Three of them carry on the original financial theme of the Occupy London protests. Uh, so you can go to Canary Wharf uh, and go for a stroll around those gleaming towers and understand what happens. Inside them and in their bellies. Uh, You can go to the City of London, which starts at St Paul's where the Occupy London protest began, take a tour through sort of the very ancient history of the City of London and it's, its. place at the heart of money and finance and of course uh, corruption in London and still is today and you can go to Mayfair as well and find out that's kind of the wild west of uh, the UK financial sector it's where all the hedge fund boys hang out and they're, again hidden behind unassuming facades they just look like houses with a little gold nameplate but actually someone's chucking around billions inside so it's, it's really interesting to hear what goes on there um, they all run monthly as does the energy tour if you want to find out when the next tours are just go to Occupy Tours. Pretty straightforward, and you'll be able to click on whichever tour takes your fancy and click through to make a booking. That's fantastic,
2: thanks for taking the time to. I should say, in the time we've been recording, it's gone from being a, a very charming day full of sunshine to, well, our, our hair is at right angles <laughs> uh, to our heads, so I think it's it's probably time to call it a day for that reason, if for no other. Max Wakefield, Alice Bell, thanks very much.
3: Thank thanks for having us.
2: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Alice Belt and Max Wakefield. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolf.